Hi, this is Chris Castle, and you're listening to Your Morning Coffee, the podcast with Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchert. Weekly music news for the new music business. From Billboard, politicians hate Spotify's discovery mode. Managers love it for now. From Billboard, why are there so few new hits in 2022? From Music Business Worldwide, Latin music is on course to generate over $1 billion in the U.S. in 2022. And another from Music Business Worldwide, judges in the U.S. have hinted that the mechanical royalty rate paid to publishers and songwriters for vinyl sales should rise. The major label's lawyers have come out swinging. Oh, yeah. Coming out swinging. All right, Jay. Let's get in the move. Let's do our stretches. We are ready because here we go. Stand by for transmission. This is London calling. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Well, Jay, here we are, episode number 88. Double eight. Can you believe it? We are marching towards episode 100. I know, that's going to be fun. And we, speaking of fun, we yeah. would be remiss if we didn't mention, and I, I will let you lead it, because you really did the work oh. to make this happen. Well, uh, talk about what we did earlier this week. <laughs> we we're, we have a special kind of bonus episode that we're going to drop on our listeners uh, pretty soon here this week. Um, Mike and I had the pleasure of sitting down with Merck Mercuriatus um, from Hypnosis. We talk about him almost every week and his company and, and what they're up to and what's going on in the business. But uh, it is a fascinating discussion, and uh, we hope you'll all tune in. Again, it's just kind of a special bonus episode of our conversation uh, this week with Merck Mercuriatus. And it was fun. Oh, it was fun. And he is a hoot, and boy, that guy. And listen, at its core, at his core... He is a music fan. You know, we were talking just briefly with him. Oh, God, hardcore. He was talking about some of the things he was listening to at the moment and getting on vinyl. And, you know, again, this guy comes from such a pure place in terms of fandom and just appreciation. And he's such a great advocate. You know, we we were... You you worked with him for a bit. Um, I did, not directly. Um, I worked at Sanctuary when he uh, was a CEO and I, I got to meet him uh, one night. Um, he actually managed Guns N' Roses. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw Guns N' Roses uh, with the team at Madison Square Garden when I was working at uh, Sanctuary and had a chance to just 
you know, say hello to Merck. But then years later, um, he was managing Elton John and he came in for a meeting at Universal Music Enterprises and I got to see him again. Um, I don't, you know, claim to know him well or anything, but I've certainly followed his career. Yeah. And it's quite remarkable. But what I thought was really interesting was remember before we hit record, uh, on that interview, talk a little bit about what was going on. Oh, well, we were just, you know, as you do in these things, you kind of start comparing notes and talking about stuff. But he just, you know, we just, again, jumped right into music and the things that we're passionate about, art, you know, artist-wise and song-wise and album-wise. And you just get the feeling. It's like, you know, this guy's, it's like we all do when you sit down. You just kind of, you go back to being a kid. Like when you first yeah. got in into music, and and one of the things that we noticed, we actually didn't get a chance to talk to him about this, but but early in as as early in his childhood, he got into Kiss, and you know that is kind of a connection point for for all three of us, and yeah. So it's just you know it it was basically I would say that we immediately connected on music, and it was just like. It's just like one of your buddies, you know, even though yeah. I'd never met him. And um, it was a real treat, you know, really had a yeah. great time. I, it, it could yeah. have gone for, for another two hours. Easily. And I sent him a note afterwards just saying that the next time we, we connect, uh, Mike and I want to come over and see your record collection. Yes. And, you know, it'll be like the movie High Fidelity. <laughs> oh, exactly right. So we, it's we're, we're Jay and I are pretty excited to share it with everyone, and uh, it was really a treat. Boy, it was really fun. Yeah, watch your feed this week. Um, yeah. We're going to drop that special, uh, special kind of a bonus episode uh, interview with Mark. Indeed, and some of the things that we're going to talk about today, some of the articles were the, some of the things that we, he and I, and Jay and I, uh, spoke about with with Merck. So it'll be interesting to kind yeah. of hear what's going on in that space. By the way, the guy that I get to talk to every week about all this fun stuff is none other than my good buddy Jay Gilbert. He is the co-founder of music marketing and strategy company Label Logic. He's the curator of the Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with Universal, Sony, Warner Music Groups, and Fox Entertainment because he got tired <laughs> of music just for a little bit there. Jump over to film. Oh, uh, yeah, it was a good experience. And and Mike here, my brother from another mother, is a longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, which there's a new book coming out we, we need to read and talk is. about. Yes. Um, it's out. I mean, I saw it. Yes. I, I need to get it. Uh, SST Records, uh, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal. And just like Paul McCartney, Elliot Easton, Jimi Hendrix, and Kurt Cobain, he plays guitar left-handed. How does that affect your piano playing? Does it Change anything? Well, it's, first of all, assuming that I play piano, I'm more of a piano owner and a guitar owner. So, oh, you uh, take that back. It's uh, it, yeah, it's funny, you know. It, it's uh, it's the great. Do you play handicap. the bass line better. You would think I would be a better left hand. No, I'm not at all. But but with <laughs> with guitar, that's the thing. It's not really the. Your, it's yeah, it, it's it's a whole different thing. I don't know how to explain. Do you it. play a guitar just? turned upside down like some people do or is it really strung correctly i string it left-handed but i can play okay. a bit strung upside down because i worked in college i worked in a music store and sold guitars so that's crazy yeah i learned to play strung upside down as well it's it's bizarre yeah. but it, it feels right feels right jay <laughs> by the way without our sponsors jay we could not do this every week so mm. let's of course give a big shout out to the folks that help bring the party let's do it Let's do it. Uh, first off, Music Business Association. It's a four-day uh, Music Biz 2022 conference agenda, and it's just been announced. It's taking place May 9th through the 12th at the JW Marriott in Nashville. 
um, I'll be there hosting a panel or two and uh, looking forward to seeing everybody there. Uh, along with the returning favorites like the Metadata Summit, Next Gen Now, DSP Workshops, Brand Summit, just to name a few, you'll find timely new additions for 2022, including conversations on NFTs, gaming, immersive music experiences, catalog acquisitions, and much more. Visit musicbiz.org. Mm-hmm. Also sponsored by HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It is edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla. HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. And you betcha, Bands in Town, over 65 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from from their favorite artists. It is the number one artist service platform connecting over 55, I'm sorry, collecting over 550,000 artists Ooh. with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Big thanks. Music Business Association, Bands in Town, Hypebot. Couldn't do it without you guys. So we thanks. sure appreciate it. Yes, indeed. But so, Jay, let's jump into it because we've got so many things to talk about. And um, yeah. some of this is pretty dense stuff. Um, it's, it's you know, a lot of the things, again, we, we talked about with Merck, um, but, it's, yeah. but it is the business. And so let us jump in. The first story is from Billboard. Politicians hate Spotify's discovery mode. Managers love it for now. And we talked about discovery mode last week. And yeah. We are going to talk about it again, and mm-hmm. uh, as you recall, last week we talked about the. Uh, we mentioned that members of Congress are worried about the long-term effects of Spotify's new program. The words uh, that people keep using is a word that has been around for a very long time. That is payola. Do you think it's yeah. is, is, does it feel payola-ish or payola-esque? Well, to they you? talk about in this article how it's not payola, which we lovingly refer to as playola. Mm-hmm. You know, where you pay for uh, being placed on a playlist, uh, and typically that's user curated playlist, by the way. Um, and so, like, because it's you know the airwaves belong to the public, so there's that, that's against the law for that uh, to not disclose. You know, when you're being paid for placement. It's a gray area when it comes to streaming, right? And and you're right. We talked about this last week. You know, Spotify was a receive we're on, was on the receiving end of a scolding. You know, from uh, several members of Congress. Congress, if I can speak, I need another cup of coffee. We believe that one of your new music promotion programs, Discovery Mode, is another troubling move by your company that sacrifices honesty in the name of profit. You know, that's that was a quote from uh, representatives. You know, Yvette Clark, Judy Chu, Tommy Cordinas. They wrote that in a in a letter. So they're they're looking at this like it's payola, like it's uh, playola. But as this article points out, there's a lot of artist managers and labels, small labels um, that have been part of this beta. This hasn't rolled out to everyone yet, but it's been going on for about a year, and there are a lot of people who are using it. And they're saying, um, well, there's kind of been mixed results. Some of them have been getting tremendous lift in their streams. Others, some lift, but maybe not tremendous. Um, But they also argue that, you know, as more people are allowed in this, it's going to dilute its effectiveness. Yeah, and and the article talks about kind of the race to the bottom. Which and don't forget, if if you participate in this, um, you are you are accepting a lower uh, stream rate. 
And so, so right. it, it's not a, a cash payment up front, but it's basically getting less for your streams uh, to participate in the program. And right. uh, but, but again, you know, uh, one of the managers said if it's Spotify's mission is to prevent gatekeepers from stopping good music from making it to the top, discovery mode is definitely doing that, says one manager. We first started yeah. using it a year ago and saw incredible, incredible results, adds an indie label head. And one particularly effusive manager of a pop act said, Discovery mode is a brilliant tool, amazing for marketing music. So there are some huge fans out there. Um, as the article pointed out, which is interesting, is that many of the managers that they spoke with for this article were not aware uh, that con- that these Congress people had written a letter, right. you know, criticizing it. But they were right. talking about being able to pump their streams up as much as two hundred to three hundred percent. So that is yeah. not insignificant. That's something, and it doesn't surprise me that they weren't aware of this letter. It's it's fairly new, and frankly, what you're looking at is a decrease in revenue versus an increase in plays. So you have mm-hmm. to kind of you know balance those two things. But one of the quotes that jumped out at me was it was it won't enhance a track that's not already streaming. So you're not gonna. It's like throwing gasoline on your fire if yeah. you've got something that's gaining momentum because they go on to talk about some people who were invited into this beta are dropping their entire catalogs into this program. Right. And they're saying that's really not what this is for. This is for you to pick your focus tracks and your key artists and things that deserve to be heard more and maybe are picking up a, a little bit of steam and this will kind of throw a little fuel on that fire. It's not meant to just take something that isn't interesting and make it interesting. Exactly. But of course, no matter what, as, as one of these big quotes in the article says, if people are getting boosted, you have to compete. So yeah. what, what is that? And this has always been the issue with payola, with any sort of marketing things that, that we've done historically in the business, which is, Hey, all you're doing that. I'm going to raise you and do this. And so you've got this super competitive environment where people there's just so few chairs at the table. Yeah. So what happens when that happens though, of course, is if everybody is doing it, then suddenly you've got this uniform essentially lower rates that are being paid to lots and lots of artists. And that's right. certainly what has the attention of the members of Congress. It's like, whoa, right. whoa, 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 whoa. And yeah, the Artist Rights me. Alliance. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, and the Artist Rights Alliance, which has also come out and said, you know, Nat, this yeah. is not good. Yeah, this reminds me of the world of radio and radio yeah. promotion, it, only in that if everybody's doing it, it, it dilutes the power uh, of doing it. It says here, in a world of radio, for example, overall labels would be better if everyone co- cooperates and refuses to pay for airplay, radio promotion explains Gabriel Rossman, an associate professor at UCLA who has studied payola. But at any given time, no matter what you're doing, I have the incentive to pay. If you're not paying a bribe, and I am, I get all the the airplay. And if you're paying bribes, and I also pay a bribe, then at least I get some airplay. So there is some similarities uh, with that, although I'm not saying that you're paying a, a bribe with this program, but by giving up some of your royalties for this uh, added exposure, 
you you are paying just not directly but what i like about this program is that it's so challenging to come up with funds for let's say radio promotion mm-hmm. or for targeted online advertising for new and developing artists especially and even some middle class artists this is a way for them to get some promotion without paying directly it does level the playing field in in some ways you Potentially, right? I mean, potentially. Yeah. Um, but you know, as the as the as the article goes on to say, it says even some of the managers and label heads who object to Discovery Mode have started to use it, which offers potential support for the race to the bottom theory. One of them said, "I was advocating from the beginning that they shouldn't do this at all. You're poking a hole in the dam. But if people mm-hmm. are getting boosted, you have to compete in that environment." As we started talking about, so he's testing Discovery Mode for his acts. It makes me uncomfortable, he says. Yeah, I think a lot of them feel that way. Yeah. But but then you have to look at the other side. You know where you know they say it's it's not hard to find managers that have a really positive results quote we've had artists go from 5,000 streams a day to a hundred thousand streams a day one of them said we've seen hundreds of thousands of dollars of revenue created we saw it around six months of growth and that comes back to what I said a minute ago it's that decrease in revenue versus the increase in plays yeah and it says a di- and one of the, the paragraphs says a different label leader said several of his acts saw daily streams jump by a factor of two to three it's been really awesome for pop and dance music according to a manager uh, he said another manager of and another manager of a pop acts uh, that was earning even more daily streams saw a jump of a similar magnitude and a third manager has seen sizable gains on songs that were already earning more than 500,000 streams a day so as you were mentioned this is really meant to be gasoline on an already smoldering uh, campfire exactly. so it's not exactly. like take it's not going from 0 to 500,000 streams a day it's going from maybe 100,000 to 500,000 streams a day. Yeah, I think it's important to point out that this won't enhance a record that's not streaming. You know, one of the label head adds that where it has an impact is viral records or songs that listeners are already saving and adding to their personal libraries. If you're running it effectively, the executive said, you're going to make money no matter what. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, it, it, yeah. just in general, with the artists you're working with, what is your take on discovery mode for your specific artists? Well, I'm not running any right this moment, but I can tell you that the conversations I've had, you know, with my friends that are doing it, that they are seeing lift, but it's kind of all over the map. There's some where they're getting huge lift and some where they're not getting a huge lift. But I think if you're, if you're not dumping a catalog on there, if you're selective about what you're placing uh, in the program, it can be very effective. I'm just curious what happens when the floodgates open and it's not in beta and it's not in a test and you get uh, thousands and thousands of tracks that are now kind of in this program and being served up to people in maybe their uh, Discover Weekly, Release Radar, Radio, um, and in some of these uh, personalized playlists, which for those who don't know, you know, there are these playlists that are personalized, meaning that... Uh, Mike's version of the same playlist will be a little bit different than mine based on my listening habits. And I think that's where they can feed some of these tracks in. So, you know, it just proves that theory that if you're an early adopter, you're going to have more benefits from mm-hmm. discovery mode. And, you know, the latecomers, uh, you know, maybe not so much. But look, as a music marketer, I'm looking for any 
anything, any tool, any arrow in my quiver that will help an artist. And it's always, you know, evolving and changing. You know, 18 months ago, it might have been Instagram stories ads that drive to a DSP. And now reels are really overperforming. But it's all changing and dynamic and cyclical. And this looks really cool, uh, you know, in theory. But I can see the point of people who say, but yeah, you're basically paying for play by giving up that revenue in a situation where, as we all know, you don't make a lot of revenue from streaming anyway. anyway. But I would argue that if you're a developing artist, I think that sometimes it's more important to give up that revenue to gain that engagement and audience if if you can. Yeah. This article ends with, with saying, as you, you mentioned earlier, Jay, you know, certain people are kind of putting an artist's entire catalog in at once. And that is, that is messing the entire idea. So, but I think it says, so. it says here, another manager who agrees that discovery mode is going to get absolutely flooded is still eager to take advantage of it while he can. He said, this is the golden age for this right now. I think this is an excuse for Spotify to pay people less and they're not paying people much to begin with, but an artist in the development stage needs everything they can get. And there it is. There it is. And there we go. And we've seen that, you know, that's always, it's, that's essentially been <laughs> the argument for lots of things historically that have been done uh, that maybe are yeah. just a skosh sketchy, but uh, yeah, yeah, we will, we will, we will continue to pay attention to how it rolls out and, and if it rolls out and if it rolls out in a different form, because, you know, that's the, the thing about flooding with full catalogs into it, that's something that Spotify can easily modify and, and, and sure. forbid from happening. So, yeah, my guess is, and they I think will, they should. Yes, absolutely. You know, let's if if it's going to work, I think it's got to be selective, and maybe as a label or a distributor, there are limits to you know what the number of tracks are that you can put into the program, and and maybe that could help. Uh, keep everybody, uh, you know, fresh and keep those uh, algorithms doing the right thing. Yeah, exactly. So, all right, let's jump over to another Billboard story, Jay. Uh, why are there so few new hits in 2022? I found this article fascinating because, you know, I mean, I don't really pay that close attention to what is considered a hit these days, like big, gigantic radio hits, streaming hits. I'm out of that demographic, so... You know, it's it's not something that I yeah. that I basically necessarily say. But as this article starts out, it says if you've been looking to catch up on the hottest new songs released in 2022, you wouldn't find them towards the top of the Billboard Hot 100 lately. While the Hot 100 measures the biggest songs in the country every week, the chart has been absolutely dominated by holdovers from 2021, some of which didn't begin their chart runs in 2022 at all. Um, and so it says, in fact, if you look at last week's chart, April 9th, more than three months into the calendar year, you'll find more songs in the top 10 and the top 20 that were released in 2020 yeah. than in well, 2022. let's think about that for a second, because yeah. what you and I talked about last week was, remember, catalog is considered um, 18 months or older. Yes. And what we're referring to here is a lot of these songs are staying longer, and is that catalog... Or is that frontline? And yes. I would argue that that is still frontline front line just Absolutely. because it's 18 months, you know, and 
John Fleckenstein, who's the chief operating officer at RCA, said we've been seeing this trend for over you know quite a few years now. He believes that the contemporary predominance of streaming is simply more accurately reflecting the way listeners have likely been consuming music. Yeah. He says, I would imagine if you look at someone's consumption, it looks a little bit like a bell curve where they start to discover the song and then they get excited about it and they listen to it a lot you know, for a period of time. But I think that when you do that across millions of people, you see this very long tail and you see songs last a very long time. And I think that's what you're seeing on the charts. And and I couldn't agree more. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and it was a little different last year. And I think, um, uh, you know, it's probably, I mean, as the article points out, it will probably kind of, adjust itself as we get further into the into this year that that they're yeah. real, they've got a lot of stuff coming um right but but he said um uh while we're talking about kind of radio support and, and stuff like that it says while radio support is lasting longer than ever it's also currently taking a while to kick in for songs that have already proven through other metrics to be culturally impactful they talk about uh. culturally impactful a lot and this is uh, the head of uh, A&R over at, uh, at Epic, Ezekiel Lewis. He says, believes that, uh, is, is, that's kind of contributing to the current dearth of 2022 hits from actually this year. He says, as time goes on, we're increasingly in more of a kind of show and prove era of record releases, whereby the gatekeepers are increasingly looking to the digital space to see the cultural relevance of a track. So you put a record out, yeah. you, be, it, you become sticky in the digital space, and then things that really help affect the Billboard chart, like radio audience, they kind of lag behind. He says, it's not until you get synchronicity between the digital and cultural aspects of a record, which is fascinating. Yeah. That's that's really yeah. talking well, about it, cultural aspects of a record. I love that. Yeah, it flies in the face of what I kind of assumed was going on, and that is that in this kind of TikTok driven world that things are disposable and they don't last very long. But according to this article, you know, things are actually staying around longer, at least right now. It says, you know, though streaming may be supreme in the marketplace right now, the top of the Hot 100 this year has arguably looked more reflective of the radio landscape where the biggest songs are staying stronger for longer as dictated by audience research. God, I can't talk today. Songs just aren't dying. They're lasting forever, says Eric Bradley, assistant program director at a CHR station in Chicago, WBBM. Um, he says, you know, Save Your Tears will not stop researching. You know, uh, you just think it's got to be gone. It's got to be gone. And every week it still sits up there on the top of two or three positions. You know, a Woman by Doja Cat, same thing. They're still among, you know, their audience's very, very favorite songs that they could possibly play. Yeah, and talking about TikTok, uh, you know, they, they mentioned a little further in, it says TikTok is still throwing up hits. But the question is, is it going to, is it going to the level that it went to before? Um, so yeah. he said there was a run from uh, 2019 to mid-2000 to 2020 when when something went uh, went on that platform it went and this guy was saying yeah. and i think to a large extent you can still attribute <laughs> most new breakthroughs to tiktok we just don't know if it's as if they're as ubiquitous or so dominant on the platform that they translate in the same way as they were before so yeah. is tiktok slightly cooling down 
um, in terms of its impact? I don't, I don't think so. They talk about how it's more spread out now. It's not right. cooling down. It's just, you know, in terms of minting new hits, it's also resurrecting old ones. I mean, everybody points to Fleetwood Mac, you know, dreams and, and, and those types of things with catalog, that it's not just that dance craze, you know, Lil Nas X kind of thing, that it's now just broader and more spread out. And I, I think that's that's probably pretty accurate. I mean, TikTok is, is super interesting because there are some uh, songs that really connect and then there are others that get a lot of plays but don't necessarily connect. So it's timing, it's you know what's going on in the video, it's the clip of the song, and yeah, it's a little luck too. Absolutely, but one of the paragraphs here kind of resonated with me. It says, it's taking longer and longer for people and songs to get critical mass. So I think these resurgent records, talking about that, we're going to see a lot more and more of that stuff. But you know, yeah. you and I talk about how many how many, especially relative to the time that we were, sort of the pre-streaming era, you know, you had such a, a fixed number of songs that you're competing with, basically, when right. you're releasing records. And it's, when you talk to your kids or or, or young people that are listening and, and streaming music, they have, they have so many different choices and options and things that are out yeah. there. There's just the, the voluminous amount of new music that's coming into their their playlist is just dramatic yeah. and so it makes sense that that all of these things are taking longer because just there's just such a gigantic wave of stuff insane that you can listen to I and mean, it's crazy yeah, yeah that, i think that's absolutely right there's just so much music being uploaded every day and what you find in the data is that the attention span is getting smaller and yes. smaller and we see it with marketing you know it used to be you'd want a concept video then you want kind of a teaser video and now you're getting down to reels and and TikTok and canvas which is eight seconds you know you're getting to these little bite-sized chunks for people because they don't have the attention span and if you ever want to see some interesting data look at your youtube analytics and take a look at you know you can look at any video that you've uh, uploaded and see uh, a graph that shows where the audience is dropping off. Mm. And the reason that's important is because you get paid on 30 seconds. Right. So there's a line in that graph that shows you where that 30 seconds is. And typically, you know, uh, a quarter of your audience is gone before that 30 second mark, which is crazy to me. But rarely do you see much more than 10, 15% at the end. People are, they'll watch it. Yeah. But then they'll just kind of watch a piece of it and then move on because I think they're kind of trained by all of these, you know, TikTok short little digestible videos that they don't really have much of an attention span anymore. It's kind of like junk food, you know? It's like, it's, it's, you get that immediate buzz. Ooh, this is delicious. It's good. The more you eat, it's like, yeah, it's not so good. <laughs> Anybody got any spinach? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, so, but, but to the hit, you know, to the original sort of topic of the article about, you know, lots of things that are hits right now in quotation marks really might have come, have been around as, as far back as two years ago. This is, but as the weather warms, some of the persistent hits from 2021 and 2020 will finally start to meld away. 
Uh, there was someone was saying, I feel like those older hits are starting to kind of slow a little bit. I'm hoping that that's what happens. Because, you know, as a music fan and a person who loves new artists and new projects and all of that, I want to see some fresh new life coming into play too. But at the same time, I also want to make sure that my brand, my brands are playing hit songs. He didn't say bands. He said brands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's telling, isn't it? Sure so is. I'm a little bit of a, pick, a pickle in the whole thing, but I feel like there's a, a lot of great material on the horizon. So look for more big hits. But it's fascinating to see, like you said, it really flies in the face of what we in the industry consider a catalog and what it, and that really needs to change you know and, and we we can kind of debate the number but i think 18 months is still way too short of a time to yeah. to call something catalog and as as if it's I, a as sort of a heritage record yeah i i agree um i i think i mentioned last week you know um i had read an article where uh, one um industry exec was saying maybe it should be based on velocity and not by age yes. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, but yeah, fascinating article, uh, really great piece in Billboard by Andrew Unterberger. Thank you, Andrew. That was really cool. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Well, the next article, too, is uh, when we start talking about some of these numbers, it's going to be pretty remarkable. Uh, this, this is out of, uh, out of Music Business Worldwide. And this is talking about, by Tim Ingham, no less, uh, Latin music is on course to generate over $1 billion in the U.S. in 2022. So, uh, you know, when you talk about trends, this has certainly been a trend that is bubbling, I wouldn't even say bubbling under, that has just been on a gigantic trajectory up in the last, really in the last, and it's really only in the last five years. It's crazy. It's crazy. And just, I want to take a quick moment to just gush over uh, Tim Ingham. I'm such a huge fan of Tim Ingham, and uh, I listen to the podcast that he does. Um, I've been following Music Business Worldwide, and I think he's a founder, but um, he is just on top of all of this. And what I love about this article is it really points out how Tim approaches these stories is they do their own research, and they take these reports by the IFPI and the RIAA, and they look at the data, and they look at how it's trending, and then they compare it to previous years. And especially with Latin music, it shows you just how massive uh, it's become. Stunning is really the best word. So uh, as a as a kind of a, a data point, well, they're, by the way, they are forecasting this um, because right. they were saying that uh, in, in 2021, Latin generated $886.1 million on a retail basis in the U.S. Right. Now, so that haul was more than a third of the year previous. So, so from 2020 to 2021, it rose a little over 35%. <laughs> Wow. That's massive. Yeah. So it's not going to take much to, to, it it would be only a rise of a little over 12, almost 13% to get to 1 billion in 2022. And so Tim is forecasting that it will, in fact, do that. Um, But as he said, considering that Latin music's US revenues rose by almost 20% year over year in 2020, 28.5% year over year in 2019. You are talking about unbelievable growth. I mean, it's yeah. stunning. And I guess it's, it is to be expected, but it is, boy, when you look at those numbers, you're just like, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And, and when I first saw those numbers, I was thinking, well, you know, the whole industry is growing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when you compare it against the industry or just look at it 
market share. You know, in 2019, Latin music had a little under 5% market share. The next year, it went to 5.4% market share. But this last year, it went to almost 6% market yeah. share. So yeah. it's not just that a rising tide lifts all boats. It's that it's overperforming and it's getting more of its share of that pie. Yeah. Uh, as they say, driven by superstars like Bad Bunny, Becky G, and Anita, streaming revenues from Latin music in the U.S. totaled uh, $857 million in 2021, uh, mm-hmm. making up 97% of total Latin revenues. Wow. Big number. Big yeah. number. And uh, but you know we see this is the Latinization of music of everything in our country. So it's it's when you look at just sort of general demographics, it makes total sense. Um, yeah. And it's but it boy it, it when you see those jaw dropping numbers, those rises year over year, it's unreal. Yeah, if you look at just streaming and not uh, physical or or downloads, which are still hanging in there. Uh, every dollar generated in the U.S. Uh, from streaming uh, last year. Uh, you know, um, for, for every dollar, you know, around one in every 14 was generated by Latin music. So it's, uh, it's becoming bigger and bigger. And yes, you pointed out, you know, bad bunny who's just massive. We talked about, uh, the touring revenue a couple of weeks ago. We talked about just the, the incredible amount of uh, revenue he's made on touring and merch and now seeing how he's driving a lot of the streaming when it comes to uh, Latin music. It's it's really phenomenal that it's being driven by just a few artists. Right. And it's funny you mentioned Bad Bunny. Is it me? I feel like I only learned about Bad Bunny like... <laughs> 24 months ago maybe i mean it's that 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 rise seems super fast i probably just wasn't paying attention but when you look at his touring numbers we've talked in the past about those oh my god the guy is just printing money yeah yeah it's crazy they said in a year where uh when bad bunny was the most streamed artist in the world not, not just for Latin music, the most streamed artists in the world, stars like Becky G that you mentioned, Anita, they had chart-topping hit after hit too. And audience joyfully flocked to Latin-powered stadiums and arenas you know, to see these live performances as they ramp back up. Latin label teams and artists continued soaring to new heights. So it's definitely on our radar now. Remember, um, we had... Uh, we had someone uh, reach out to us a yes. while back saying, why don't you cover uh, Latin music a little Absolutely. bit more? And as we looked at it a little more closely, we realized that we were missing the boat, that it is just a juggernaut. Yeah. They talked, too, about ad-supported and on-demand platforms. And it says, finally, let's take a look at a longtime stronghold for Latin music in the U.S., which is ad-supported on-demand streaming platforms, including YouTube and Spotify's free tier. They said across this type of streaming platform, Latin music generated $187 million in the U.S. in 2021, again, up 46% year-on-year. And they say that according to Music Business Worldwide's analysis of RIAA figures, this meant that Latin music accounted for 10.62% of all revenue generated by such platforms in the States last year. That's those free tiers. Yes, but that That's is fascinating yeah. that that Latin music can can take a tenth of that revenue uh, here in the U.S. That's that's remarkable, and it's re- and it's yeah. interesting to see that that is a super big stronghold for Latin music in general. Not surprising, probably, but very interesting. Yeah, 
Yeah, and and again, I'll just put a fine point on this. If if you're not uh, following Tim Ingham on Music Business Worldwide, you need to mm. do that. Um, but listen to his podcast. Um, he's my hero, man. He just uh, he and his team they just dig into the numbers and they do their own forecasting. You know, the the headline here is Latin music is on course to generate over one billion in the U.S. in 2022, and the reason he can say that with some confidence is he's you know, they look at the data, they look at the trends, they look at the numbers. And um, there are just a handful of those people out there like Glenn Peoples at Billboard or Sherry Who or, you know, uh, Chris Castle. There are people out there who are really digging into this stuff for us. And so we don't have to. So, yes, no, they, do, they do God's work. It's, it's good. <laughs> really yes, fascinating. Uh, but that's not enough. We're going to hear from that's not all we're going to hear from Tim. So this next article on also on Music Business Worldwide, also from Tim, is is again what we sort of talked about with Merck this this last week, which is uh, this story. Judges in the U.S. have hinted that the mechanical royalty rate paid to publishers and songwriters for vinyl sales should rise. The major labels have come out swinging. And ooh, this is... Yeah, this is a different twist to a story we've been yeah. talking about a lot, uh, the Copyright Royalty Board and and this ongoing battle to make sure that publishers and songwriters then, um, are paid uh, fairly. Um, but this one really starts to focus on something that really we weren't talking a lot about, and that's that 9.1 cent you know, payment uh, for physical, um, mm -hmm. where you're talking about vinyl, CD, and, and in some cases uh, even in download. But they, they talk a lot to our, our friend Chris Castle, and you've heard me talk about Chris. He's got a website called Music Technology Policy that I read every week. It's just absolutely the best coverage about this battle over streaming, you know, and now CD and vinyl uh, payouts. Yeah, and it's worth sort of reviewing if 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 you're a listener to this uh, podcast and you haven't been in the business or been in, in performing for a long time, uh, back in the in the physical days. Um, the the mechanical royalty, which is the publishing royalty paid for a physical product, call it a CD, was 9.1 cents per song. So whoever wrote the songs got that. It wasn't encumbered by any sort of recoupment thing that was always that was paid by record one. And that 9.1 cents was was uh, was put in by Congress. So it was not something that was that you could change. Um, and also, but uh, labels back in those days would only typically pay for 10 songs on a record. So uh, as somebody pointed out to me, if you notice that Bob D all of Bob Dylan's albums, classic albums, most of them had only 10 songs, that's why, because they had, he and his manager had a very uh, knowledge, a good knowledge base of how publishing worked. Yeah. So that's kind of, but that 9.1 cents has been around for ages. And um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about about that. But that's you yeah. know it, it, when, in in it's funny to be talking about physical again. But as we mentioned, vinyl sales were approaching a billion dollars last year, and this is there is there is a very real market for physical sales when you're talking about. And and as we also mentioned that 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 might have been that that number could have been considerably larger given the challenges of, of production of vinyl at the moment and how the, right. the system is just overloaded. So that's right. a big number. But if you talk about 9.1 cents, that has been in effect since what, what forever. was the... Forever. 
forever. Yeah. And think about this. It hasn't even been adjusted for inflation. Nope. Um, which is ridiculous. And now, you know, we talk about vinyl. Vinyl isn't the same as it was back in the day. Now it's not selling for 10 bucks or 12 bucks. Even, you know, if you count for inflation, it's like $25, $30. It's a premium item. Yes. And yet these, uh, these people who are writing these songs are getting 9.1 cents still. And this was a really interesting uh, battle here because um, it's, we're still really looking at about 83% of the business being streaming. And so this has been kind of ignored a little bit. And what Tim Ingham points out is that, points out is that his readers will remember that the NMPA, the National Music Publishers Association, you know, currently locked in a legal battle with Spotify and other streaming services to increase the pay, you know, via mechanical royalties, that songwriters get from these platforms uh, in the U.S., locked in two battles to be more precise. The Copyright Royalty Board, which you and I talk about weekly, they ultimately set the percentage of a streaming company's revenues that it must pay out in royalties to songwriters in the U.S., and it does so every few years, right? Four years ago, the CRB ruled that the streaming ser services should up that percentage from 10.5% to 15.1%, you know, for the years 2018 through 2022, which we're almost at the end of, and it's been... Uh, you know, challenge. So it hasn't even been, it's still at that old rate today, right? Because uh, it's, it's still being challenged. So the likes of Spotify, you know, they're appealing that ruling and a phone, a final post appeal decision from that CRB is expected to coming uh, soon. The NMPA is also battling Spotify and everybody else when it comes to the mechanical rates paid to songwriters for streaming services for the year, 2023 through 2027 that's what they're debating right now and that's just getting underway so it's it's really this battle between you know and we talk about this with Merck so I, I encourage everybody to listen to that Merck uh, interview because he goes into it a lot better and more eloquently than I can but he talks about where it started and who's really standing to gain uh, from from this battle because right now there's there's a finite amount of revenue in that pie and we need to slice it up fairly now I would argue that streaming is probably uh, undervalued that we're paying too little mm -hmm. for it and they should be paying more for the all of the value that you get but putting that aside for a second uh, and Merck will talk about this that that pie the way it's sliced up really needs to change well, and, and one of his uh, points that he continually brings up is you, know, you have this inherent conflict, which is three of the biggest publishers are owned by three of the biggest recorded music companies. So that's a problem. You yeah. know, that's, that is a really big issue. Think about that. Yeah. Think about that. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm trying to think of an analogy in, in, in another industry, but um that really is a gigantic conflict through all of this, is how hard are those three biggest publishers going to push when their parent company is actually on the other side of it saying, no, we don't want any rise. And one of the things the article point out is that the NMPA, you know, if you're going to take on the the 9.1% when it comes to royalties with for physical downloads, so therefore you're taking on the major music companies, or if you're going to talk about the streaming royalty and then you're taking on the, the DSPs, those are expensive battles to to fight. 
And that, yeah. those monies, so, so in many ways, the NMPA has to kind of pick their battle, so to speak. And it's, it, I think that's the most heartbreaking thing I read about this article is that, you know, in many ways, they, they just don't have the money to, keep, to fight on both fronts. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, the, there was a settlement that was, um, that was put forth and it was rejected, um, March 30th and CRB's chief copyright royalty judge, Suzanne Barnett wrote 16 years at a static rate that 9.1 cents is unreasonable. Let me say that again. 16 years at that static rate is unreasonable. If for no other reason than the uh, continuous erosion of the value of the dollar by a persistent inflation that recently has increased significantly. In other words, if government measured U.S. inflation from 2006 to 2021 was applied to that 9.1 rate, songwriters and publishers today would be getting 12, not 9.1. They'd be getting 12 cents for each track that appeared on a physically uh, purchased disc or a download. Right. And again, that's not that's not a raise. That's just taking into account inflation. She actually said something interesting. She said no party opposing the present settlement has evinced actual or implied evidence of misconduct other than the corporate structure of the record labels on the one hand and the publishers on the other. While corporate relationships alone do not suffice as probative probative evidence of wrongdoing, they do provide smoke. The judges must therefore assure themselves that there is new fire. So you can see that they are the judges, that is, are kind of, you know, you know, when your dog kind of looks at you with the crooked, and they move their head, and they, <laughs> you got to think that the judges are kind of looking at all this and going, wait a minute, this really is kind of jacked up so yeah which which you would which as you know th- this article is written out really interestingly where he kind of does these little asides um but you can see that, first of all this is really dense stuff and, and it is really hard to keep the players to, to understand what's going on in the players and i think obviously that is by design but sure. i think um it's, it's just it is so blatantly um Unfair. Unfair, yeah. Well, you know, it doesn't sound like a lot of money, 9.1 cents versus 12 cents. You know, on its face, that doesn't sound like a lot. But Billboard did a calculation about that. And if the record labels would have paid that 12 cents instead of uh, that 9.1 cents, it would would have added up last year to $42.4 million to songwriters and publishers. $42.4 million. And as Merck says, and you, if you listen to the episode, you'll hear him say, it's like, you know, it, without the songwriters, without the songs, our business is not a business. And, and yet at every step along the way, we continue as an industry to just pound them into the sand. And just yeah, it's, it's just, um, it's unfair. But the good news is that there are people like Merck and there are people like the, you know, Chris Castle and the Copyright Royalty Board. I think things are definitely moving in the right direction. You know, we talk about that $42.4 million that they would have earned just, just with keeping up with inflation. Think about it in these terms that like the Universal Music Group is generating over $10 billion across its global business every year, $10 billion. And then you look at that, you know, um, that $42.4 million, you know, that amount, it, it doesn't seem as, as big. You know, it sounds no, like it's, it's, it's fair. It, it's it's a rounding error when you look at at the giant numbers that you're talking about, and it's um, it, it's 
again, it's freaking galling, you know, yeah. that, 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 that they are pushing back so hard and they cannot yeah. make it, uh, get, get songwriters the money they deserve. Yeah. I think that one of the leaders in this space, and we talk about him on the podcast quite a bit is, is my friend, Chris Castle, you know, from music technology policy, music business attorney. And he, they brought him up in this article. Mm-hmm. It says Chris Castle is the aforementioned attorney representing independent songwriters who have submitted filings to the CRB over the past year. And it says Castle also runs music technology policy, right? And they feature regular and perceptive updates on the progress of Phono Records 4, which is the CRB. Castle argues that the CRB may ultimately decide it has a headache on its hands when it comes to vertical integration of publishing and records within the same three major uh, corporate groups. As Castle puts it, what do you do when a willing buyer and a willing seller are the same person? Yeah. That's kind of what you alluded to a second ago. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he see they they quote him saying, "I just don't understand why the major record companies would do this because they've built up so much goodwill lately." And they certainly have, and it is yeah. really bad forgiving debt, right, for Absolutely. unrecouped catalog Absolutely. artists. That was amazing. Yep. Absolutely. And so it is pretty um it's it's I think it's tone deaf, certainly no pun intended, and I think it's just galling that we have this continued battle when, you know, especially when Universal just went public last year and they are just sitting on a gigantic pile of money, and you know as we've said and we've talked so much about you know you the one of no what is what is Spotify valued at? What is Universal Music value valued at? All of these valuations have just gone through the roof. And yet again, this entire business is built on the backs of songwriters. And yet we cannot get them even a raise to even cover inflation. Right. It sucks. Yeah, well, I think it's going to happen. Um, it's going to be really interesting because already the CRB is pushing back a little bit. And I think that's a good thing. Um, I'm, I remain cautiously optimistic. I think that we are going to start paying, uh, songwriters, uh, more fairly, but it, you know, as Merck points out, this, this is going to take time and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and he doesn't fault Daniel Eck. You know, I mentioned to him that, you know, Daniel Eck's a, this billionaire and he doesn't fault Daniel Eck for, you know, uh, getting rich from his invention or his platform, mm-hmm. you know, and, but the thing that bothers me, I think is when I see, you know, like gas prices are really high right now, and these uh, these companies are having record profits, and that doesn't balance to me. You know, these grocery stores, some of them are just jacking their prices up through the pandemic and having record profits, right? And that's kind of the way I see it with some of these recorded music companies is you're having record profits right now because streaming is predictable, and a lot of people are doing it. There's over you know, 500 million people who are on streaming services and it's still growing and there's still markets to come by. Um, it's time for us to sit, sit down at the table and look at some of these things, as you point out, that have been in place forever. Decades, decades. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's just not ethical. And uh, it, it's very disappointing when you see some of these titans of industry that are pushing back so hard and again you've got and it costs money to litigate and they've got money to th- if they got plenty of money to litigate this and to, right. to push back on it and yet yeah. they don't want to 
Ugh, whatever. I, well, if you ever want to dig deep into this yeah. stuff, you know, for our, for our listeners that really are interested and want to dig into the minutia here, there is no better place than um, Music Technology Policy, uh, the website. Um, Chris Castle does some amazing uh, work there and will spell it out for you. Uh, for me, sometimes my head's just spinning because of all of this. But the good news is that it's not in the back rooms anymore. It's they're shining a light on it. Yes. And it's, you know, there it goes before the copyright royalty board, which is basically a three panel judge. And, you know, maybe we'll see some some changes uh, on the horizon. Um, before we we say goodbye to everybody, just watch your feed for this bonus episode that's coming. Um, it's just a little gift from Mike and I to you. Um, we were honored to sit down with uh, Merck. I have a great deal of respect for him. What a music fanatic. Yep. It, I, I could sit and talk to him, and I know you could too, for hours just about the concerts you've gone to, the albums you listen to. To me, uh, that, that just heightens my respect for him because he's such a music freak. He comes from a, a great place, gigantic yes. fan of music. So yep. on that note, we shall wrap up episode number 88 of the podcast. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We certainly appreciate it. Of course, big thanks to the Music Business Association, to HypeBot and Bands in Town, our good friends and folks that make it happen for us. We certainly appreciate it. And on behalf of my good buddy Jay Gilbert and myself, thanks for listening in. We really appreciate it. We will see you next time on the Your Morning Coffee podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.